Okay, so I wonder how you all are doing. It's a little bit hard to tell in the gloom. It's nice gloom, but it's still gloom. But I wonder if you could maybe do just a thumb up, thumb down, wavy hand. How are you doing in this moment? Some up, some waverings. Yep. Actually, that's pretty good for the first full day of a retreat. <laughs> Usually there's a lot more waverings and downs. So maybe some of you are just keeping quiet in the back there. <laughs> we'll see. However, now that we have been here for a full 24 hours, it's possible some of you might be wondering, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? And actually, although I say that with a slight sense of humor, it's a really good question to ask and to keep asking ourselves. Because maybe particularly for people who are newer to this practice, new to meditation retreats, it's not always so clear at first what is the purpose of this practice. And it might not be so clear how paying attention to the breath for hours, for days on end can possibly be beneficial in relation to all those very real seeming life challenges that we have waiting for us back at home. So coming back to this question, what am I doing here? As a short answer, I'd like to refer back to the title of this retreat, the theme, which is Healing the Heart, Refining the Mind, Finding Freedom. And this title is an attempt that Di and I made to to try to describe the goal of this practice, freedom, and also to describe how we get there by healing the heart and refining the mind. Now, in actual practice, as we've been saying, the heart and the mind, they're not so separate. And in the context of the Buddha's teachings, the word that's usually translated as mind is not just the intellect. So it includes what in Western culture we might think of as the emotions. So generally I try to use the hyphenated term heart-mind to try to convey there's a more holistic understanding what's being pointed to here. So maybe more accurately our retreat title could have been Healing and Refining the Heart-Mind and Finding Freedom. So that's one bigger picture response to the question about what we're doing here. And then in terms of actual practice, how do we begin that process? So maybe the first thing to bring awareness to and to appreciate, which some of you have been doing already, is to appreciate being here at Temuata, where we can be secluded to some extent. We can be secluded from all the stimulation and the responsibilities of our lives out there. And maybe more and more in the context of modern life these days, just being on retreat is a radical act. As we've mentioned a few times now, I think the norm is to be constantly busy, almost as if we have to justify our very existence through incessant doing, doing, doing. So maybe, ironically, from the perspective of mainstream values, going on retreat 
is sometimes a little bit dismissed. I don't know if you've had this as a, as a kind of escapism. But if we look at it from a Buddhist perspective, in a perverse way, it's actually our collective habit of compulsive busyness that's a form of escapism. Because that constant busyness and doing is often a way of avoiding the truth, the truth of our actual experience, both moment to moment and in the bigger picture of how we're living our lives as a whole. And sadly, for many people, it's only towards the end of their lives that they start to even ask questions about any of this and to begin to wonder if maybe there might have been a better way to live. And even more tragically, for many people, even at the very end of their lives, they don't ask these kind of questions. And I have done some work in hospice as a volunteer and seen quite a few people stay very disconnected, very much in denial, right until their final breath. So I mentioned that in a way to highlight and actually to appreciate and acknowledge that every one of you here, you already have quite some degree of clear seeing, some degree of wisdom, or you wouldn't have made the choice to come on this retreat. (coughs) And every one of you already has quite some degree of courage. And that's evidenced by your willingness to turn your awareness inward, to be present for whatever arises, and to get to know yourself better. And that's not easy because there's an old joke that says something like, self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. (laughs) And you might have recognized that at different points today. So all of you here already have courage. And you also already have some degree of compassion, maybe self-compassion, because of that intention to live your lives with more clarity, with more integrity, with more kindness and care. Now, as we all know, in the context of our ordinary everyday lives, it's not so easy to continue developing and strengthening those skillful qualities that I just named. Because unfortunately, quite a few of them are at odds with more mainstream values. So most of us do need regular time in specialized conditions of retreat, like here at Timuata. And so just as a reminder of this process that we're entering into, this is how Dai and I described the rest of the retreat. We said, in the Buddha's teaching... Going on retreat can be understood as a powerful form of, quote, taking refuge. Taking refuge by temporarily retreating from our external responsibilities to take care of our inner life. The peaceful, natural environment of Temuata supports deep rest and renewal, which in turn supports the strengthening of our inner resources our connection with sangha or community, and our capacity to live with more ease and freedom in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. So that's really a summary of what we're orienting to, what we're training in, what we're developing over these next days. 
And there are just a few aspects of that description that I'd like to highlight now. So in the context of the Buddha's teachings, this idea of taking refuge, it plays a very important role on the path to freedom. And just as we ordinarily use the word refuge in English, we have this sense, implied sense of shelter, of safety, of protection, of relief, of release, of healing. And here at Temawata, we can physically take refuge in this incredible, beautiful and powerful natural environment. As many of you were experiencing today, and as Dai just mentioned this morning, being surrounded here by so many hundreds of hectares of regenerating kauri forest and all the living creatures that share that environment with us. So the tui singing in the kofi that someone mentioned in the morning, and the ruru and perhaps the kiwi calling at night. We have the elemental power of the rugged hills and the valleys and the freshwater streams. We have all the different weather systems that even in 24 hours have been rolling through. Clouds and rain and sunbursts. And at night we have the moon and the stars. And tonight is actually a new moon. So attuning to all these natural rhythms and cycles of nature, they help our nervous systems to relax when we can more fully attune, tune in to what's around us. So this connection to the natural environment all around us is one very powerful refuge. And so too is the connection that we're beginning to develop with each other here. So we have this temporary community of meditators, this community or sangha. And again, I want to highlight this because we don't want to take it for granted. You know, from the outside, it might seem totally invisible because we're not overtly, obviously interacting with each other. Instead, we're maintaining noble silence and we're giving each other space and peace. Even so showing up together for each sitting, each walking. We're offering each other the gift of our silent, steady presence. And that's a powerful support that we offer to each other. A powerful support that we offer and also one that we receive. Now having said that, I don't want to idealize it because based on my own experience at times we can feel quite irritated (laughs) by one or two or maybe even all of our co-meditators at times. Sounds like some of you might recognize that. So just as an antidote though, I like people to imagine what would it be like if you were here on self-retreat completely alone and you came into the hall every morning, it was just you and you sat for a while, walked for a while, came back into the hall, it was just you, sat, walked for a while. I don't, maybe some of you are hardcore introverts and that sounds fantastic, (laughs) but I still think maybe after a day or two, the novelty of that would wear off. And at least for me, 
I think it will be pretty hard to maintain the same integrity and diligence and consistency of practice if I was just here by myself. I suspect that my retreat might turn into more of a holiday. So just to appreciate, even in spite of times of irritation, having everyone around us helps to keep us accountable. And at times it can also inspire us when things are challenging. I was remembering back to my very first three-month retreat at IMS. And the situation there has really changed now, but on that particular retreat, there was one African-American woman in something like 90 meditators. And I'd be going through a hard time and thinking, oh, woe is me, this is so hard. And then i see that woman and I'd think, wow, if you can be here with all of us and still maintain your practice, then, I mean, I've got it easy by comparison. So just having her presence for me was a real source of inspiration and motivation. And as I said, things have changed at IMS and it's a generally a different ratio now, but back then, I can't imagine how challenging that would have been. Okay, so I just want to emphasize that being on retreat, it is a group practice. It's a shared process because maybe a little less so in New Zealand, but still in terms of dominant culture, we often put so much emphasis on individuality. And we might like to believe that we are independent and separate and that what we do doesn't impact anybody else. But in fact, what we do here, how we show up, the energy and the effort that we bring, it has an effect on every one of us. Every one of us here, we're contributing in our own way to this retreat container. And this retreat container is co-created, co-constructed. I sometimes think of it as being like a woven kete, and that every one of us is a strand that's helping to create that basket for us to do our work in. We're creating this field of positive energy that really supports beautiful qualities of heart and mind to come into being and to strengthen. And those beautiful qualities are so foundational to finding freedom. So we're taking refuge in Sangha, in community, and we're also taking refuge in seclusion, in some degree of solitude. And this is in line with the opening phrases from the Satipatthana Sutta. That's the key discourse for the insight tradition. And it's known in English as the four establishments of mindfulness. So for insight or Vipassana practice, all the different methods and techniques that we'll be offering over the next few days, they all come from this one Satipatthana Sutta. So the opening lines from that discourse, from the first section on mindfulness of the body, it says, Here, gone to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut. One sits down, having folded one's legs crosswise, set one's body erect, and established mindfulness in front of one. Mindful one breathes in, 
mindful one breathes out. So there's some resonance there. Here we're all in the forest. Our huts might not be completely empty, but there's fewer people around than maybe in the cities where we usually live. And maybe some of you have been experimenting with sitting at the root of a tree. And just as a side note, although it talks about sitting with one's legs crosswise, it's not essential to sit cross-legged. Sitting on a chair or in any other posture is fine. What is important is the establishing of mindfulness. And the position, the posture of the body doesn't matter because mindfulness can be established no matter what position the body is in. So we have the support of taking refuge in the natural environment of Temuata. We have the support of Sangha, of community. We have some degree of seclusion and solitude. And these are all the outer conditions that help to turn our attention inwards and to metaphorically in that quiet and stillness and simplicity, we have a better chance of not metaphorically jamming our own frequencies. Because out there we tend to be so overstimulated and overactivated that we just can't, we say we can't hear ourselves think, but we also can't hear ourselves not think. So we instead we have the opportunity here to listen to our embodied intuitive wisdom because it's this intuitive wisdom or you could say insight that helps to free ourselves from all those different afflictive thought patterns and mind states and in their place to develop the beneficial and beautiful qualities of heart and mind those are the qualities that allow us to live with more ease more contentment more peace more freedom independent of the circumstances of our lives. So again, that's one way of describing where all of this practice is leading. But to a lesser extent, it's also where we start. So those of you who are familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, you might remember that in the very first section, again, when we're looking at uh, the body, the instruction is to abide, quote, contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. So you might read that as I did and go, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world already? I haven't even started meditating yet. That seems like a pretty high bar. So we can explore what is that phrase suggesting to us. There are a few possible interpretations. One is that just the act of contemplating the body, quote, diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, just that, it puts us in a state where we can at least be temporarily free from desires and discontent. And I think all of us have already had some experience of that, even if just for a few minutes at a time. When we are able to be fully mindful with the immediacy of our experience, that full mindfulness, that fullness, so to speak, it means there's no room in the heart-mind 
for those more afflictive states like desires and discontent to be there. Now just to be clear again, because the language can be misleading, the desires that are being pointed to here as unhelpful are basically desires for (coughs) sense-based pleasure. So this phrase is also sometimes translated as greed. And in the discourses generally, there's a pretty clear distinction between sense-based pleasures, such as, say, delicious food or enjoyable sights or sounds or pleasant physical sensations. Those are on one hand, and there are skillful, pleasant mental states. And these are qualities such as generosity and tranquility and joy and so on. So to keep in mind that when it says free of desire, not all desire is inherently bad. Some forms of desire are helpful. The desire to come on this retreat, for example, or the desire to experience more calm and clarity and compassion, or the desire to live ethically without harming, to be kind and generous and empathetic. Those are just some skillful examples of skillful desires. Okay, so coming back to that phrase from the sutta, what we often discover is even if we're physically secluded in a tranquil, peaceful location like here, even supported by sangha and living a quieter, simpler, slower life, in spite of all that, our hearts and minds, generally speaking, don't instantly adjust to those supportive conditions. In fact, sometimes the opposite. The heart-mind almost goes into overdrive in reaction to the simplicity and the relative lack of stimulation. I don't know if any of you have noticed that at times in this first day or so. So in my own experience, what I at times felt like I was going through a detox process detoxing from all of those compulsive habits and unhelpful distractions of ordinary life. And as the term detox maybe implies, this is not always a comfortable experience. So if you happen to be touching into any of that kind of terrain, then this is where, as Di mentioned in her instructions yesterday, we need to have plenty of patience and to just trust that it takes time. It takes time for the outer seclusion of this environment to begin to work its magic and to support the inner seclusion from harmful states. And that that naturally develops the more we can surrender to the stillness, the silence, the simplicity. So we have inner seclusion and outer seclusion. And in the context of the Satipatthana Sutta, this quality of mental seclusion is very important. It's the heart-mind that's, at least temporarily, secluded from harmful states. Harmful states such as various forms of greed or compulsion, various forms of hatred or aversion, and various forms of ignorance or delusion. So many of you will recognize that list. It's the list of the big three, you could say. And from those three roots, all the other unhelpful states tend to sprout. 
if there's no mindfulness. So now we come to mindfulness as the crucial first step in starting to free ourselves from these afflictive states. And I want to highlight that that beginning passage in the sutta where it talks about being free from desire and disconsent, I want to highlight that because as mindfulness becomes more and more mainstream, it's sometimes presented as a quality that's totally neutral. You simply know your experience as it is, moment to moment, that's it, end of story. And one of the dangers of any spiritual practice becoming mainstream is that it easily loses the subtlety, the depth, the breadth of what it was originally practiced for. And this is in danger of happening with mindfulness, which has become so commodified. I think, as many of you know, it's everywhere these days and so much so that a couple of years ago the US toy company Mattel launched a mindful Barbie doll (laughs) (laughs) you may remember if you had a Barbie that she used to have those really stiff rigid legs well now she's got joints so that she can sit in the lotus position (laughs) and she has a magic necklace with a button and when you press it it offers guided meditation for kids and I, I saw when I was looking at this that she's wearing, quote, inspirational loungewear <laughs> with a cloud and a rainbow graphic on her top and a cloud print on her pants. So, you know, it's, it's funny, and I don't want to be too scathing because who knows? It's possible that for some little kids, mindful Barbie might actually be their very first introduction to what turns into a whole lifetime of exploring the Dharma it's possible so I'm just using the example of mindful Barbie as, a, as to say how easily these teachings can be co-opted taken for granted, distorted sometimes even by people who are more serious meditators so in one of the three month retreats I was teaching in the U.S. a few years ago, about halfway through, somebody wrote a note to the teachers and said, well, you're giving all these talks about mindfulness, but when are we going to get to the higher instructions? (laughs) And I imagine that that person was pretty disappointed to find out that the mindfulness instructions were the higher instructions. (laughs) It's basically mindfulness in the beginning, mindfulness in the middle, mindfulness in the end. So we want to understand what are some of the nuances of what mindfulness or sati, the Pali term, refers to. What are the nuances in the context of the Buddha's teachings, because it's different in some other contexts, and how do we practice it here? So most definitions of mindfulness, they present it as the capacity to be to stay present with whatever our experience is, moment to moment. To know what we're experiencing as we're experiencing it. And to know that we know that. So that's one fairly standard definition of mindfulness. And it emphasizes that knowing, this knowing, is non-judgmental, non-reactive. So we're simply aware of whatever's happening without getting entangled in our usual habits of liking it, disliking it, wanting, not wanting, clinging, resisting, and so on. 
So there's an objective quality to mindfulness. And this is highlighted in a definition by one of my teachers, Gil Fonstone, where he says mindfulness is a cultivation of clear, stable, non-judgmental awareness. We want to keep in mind, though, that even as it's non-judgmental, it's not detached or cold or clinical, as people sometimes misunderstand. In fact, when it's refined, it can be experienced as quite subtly pleasant. And I think part of this subtle pleasantness comes from the fact that we're gathering our awareness out of its more, perhaps, usual, fragmented, scattered, distracted state. So as some of you know, this Pali word sati, etymologically, it has connotations of remembering. Not so much remembering the past, but remembering to be present. And another word for remembering is recollecting, recollecting, or gathering our attention. So we can think of sati as about bringing the mind back together out of its habitual, scattered, fragmented, distracted state to a state that's more complete, collected, whole. So this is the full part of mindfulness. And in fact, the English monk Ajahn Sachito, when he talks about mindfulness of breathing, he sometimes says, let the breath fill the mind so that there's no room for anything else. So we have the fullness aspect of mindfulness. And when we're fully, fully present with our experience, we might start to recognize that subtle pleasantness of being completely present. So I invite you just to check that out over the next few days, to start to notice how when we're fully with experience, energetically it usually feels more refreshing, more nourishing than when we're lost in thought and distracted, spaced out, disconnected. And strangely enough, sometimes even when what we're fully with is unpleasant, that subtle pleasantness can still be there. And I think that's partly because the mind that's aware is just aware. And it's not affected by what it experiences. So it can be a really useful practice to start to recognize that subtle pleasantness because it acts as a positive feedback loop and it encourages the mind to naturally want to orient to mindfulness instead of its more habitual distraction. Now, having said all of that, mindfulness is a skillful quality. And yet, in the words of the Burmese monk, Sedo Utejaniya, mindfulness alone is not enough. Some of you know his book by that title. Mindfulness alone is not enough. How can that be? It's because mindfulness simply recognizes what is happening without necessarily discerning whether what's happening is beneficial or not. So in the suttas, the discourses, mindfulness is pretty much always paired with other mental qualities, such as clear comprehension, sampajanya, or 
investigation, dhamma And these other qualities are what supports the wisdom aspect of this practice. So mindfulness recognizes, but then sampajanya, clear comprehension or investigation, discern whether an experience is leading to freedom or not. So just to acknowledge that this is a huge topic to begin to touch into, and especially after just one full day of being on retreat, and this is a fairly short talk. So what I'm going to do now is just touch into some themes, sketch a few out, and then we'll be able to come back to them in a little more detail as the retreat progresses. So... I'm not going to try and be comprehensive here. I'll just focus for now on just one of the discerning qualities that mindfulness is often paired with, and that's the quality of investigation, which, as some of you know, is occurs in the sequence of the seven factors of awakening directly after mindfulness. So it goes mindfulness and then investigation, dhammavichaya. And these seven factors of awakening are very skillful, refined mental qualities that support deep insight to arise. Now just to be clear, the kind of investigation that's being pointed to here is not how we usually think of investigation in everyday society where it often means using the intellect to think about or cogitate about the particular topic. The kind of investigation that's being pointed to here is more of a direct knowing or a direct recognition. And very specifically, it's a direct knowing of the characteristics of what we're experiencing. It's tuning in to how experience is constantly changing moment to moment. Nothing stays the same. On bigger and smaller time scales, when we're really mindful and when we investigate, we know very directly the truth of this is impermanent. And because of that constant change, we recognize that experiences are unstable. They're not capable of giving us lasting satisfaction or happiness. So they're imperfect. And at the same time, the same investigation reveals that nothing we experience is actually happening to a fixed, permanent entity or identity that I could call me at the center of it all. What we start to recognize more and more clearly is that all experiences arise due to causes and conditions. And this is a totally impersonal process. Even though for most of us, it often feels deeply personal. So, we'll be coming back to some of these themes several times. So, if this is new information for you now, don't worry about trying to understand all of it right now. This is actually probably a whole lifetime's worth of exploration, of investigation, of recognizing and insight. So for now, to try and keep it a bit more manageable, the short version is that mindfulness and investigation work together to reveal insight into the impermanent 
imperfect, impersonal nature of experience. Because when we see the impermanent, the imperfect, the impersonal, we see those characteristics on deeper and deeper levels, that's what frees the heart and the mind. It frees the heart and the mind from all afflictive states, all those painful mental qualities that come from compulsion, aversion, delusion. It doesn't end there though, because when the heart-mind is free from those states, there's almost literally more room there for the skillful, beautiful qualities to grow instead. So when the heart is healed, it naturally expresses qualities such as generosity, kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, to name just a few. And these qualities are of great benefit, not only to we ourselves, but everyone that we come into contact with. So I'd like to just encourage all of us, including me, to make the most of this precious opportunity to be here on this retreat. The more we can abide in the refuge that's offered here, the stronger our skillful inner qualities can become. And it's these inner resources, broadly speaking of wisdom and compassion, those are what we can take with us when we eventually leave here. And those are what we can offer to a world that so desperately needs them. So this is the true purpose of taking refuge and of going on retreat. And again, I want to highlight that because words like refuge or retreat, from a conventional perspective, they may sound like they have connotations of withdrawing or running away or escaping. But coming here is not about avoiding the challenges of life. We can't build ourselves a cozy nest here and stay forever. some point, we're going to have to leave. And spending time at Temuata is not escapism because it has that higher purpose to free ourselves from affliction. So true refuge is that inner refuge that we take with us out into the world. It's the ease, the equanimity, the peace that we're cultivating every minute that we're present here. And the more we do that, the more these qualities are developed. We're no longer dependent on these specialized conditions to support us. It becomes possible to maintain the same wisdom and compassion, ease and freedom, no matter what is happening in our outside lives. So this is the true refuge that all the Buddha's teachings are pointing to. We start with these external conditions to support the inner refuge becoming stronger and stronger. And then we eventually no longer need those specialized conditions. We can still maintain those beautiful inner qualities. So I'd like to finish with one last quote from the discourses. This is from the Buddha in the Dhammapada which is a collection of short verses I think some of you are familiar with. It says, They go to many a refuge, to mountains, forests, parks, trees and shrines, 
people who are threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge. That's not the highest refuge. That's not the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. But when having gone for refuge to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, you see with right discernment the Four Noble Truths, stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the stilling of stress. That's the secure refuge, that the highest refuge. This is the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. So may we all use this period of refuge to see clearly so that we can release all suffering and stress just as it says in the discourses. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment and just let the words dissolve back into silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.